So if you have been following us on our journey through third grade civics, you'll know that we've covered the federal government and civics on a national level in our Civics 101 episode, which is episode 203. Then we focused on state government in Civics 102, which is episode 205. And if you're still awake and listening to us after this scintillating introduction, we're now here to round out our basic civics knowledge with Civics 103, which is everything and more, if we're being honest, that you ever wanted to know about your local city, your county, and your municipal governments, because we need to know this to start getting engaged. So let's jump right into it. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, where we work to model and normalize conversations about race and racism as we help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. All right, let's go. <laughs> what do local governments look like? Okay, great question. So broadly speaking, local governments within each state are structured, you know, basically according to the laws of each state, right, which is sort of what we've talked about in past episodes, where states are allowed to make their own laws that they're not told by the federal government that they can't make. So each state determines which powers and responsibilities are granted to local governments. And local governments, as you mentioned in the intro, Sarah, typically include two tiers. So there's the county tier, which is the larger tier, and the municipal tier, which is a smaller one. So let's start with the smaller one, the municipal level. Municipal level governments include cities, counties, towns, well, counties, like sort of smaller areas, towns, which are mostly in small communities in New England, for example, and townships. And I believe the very smallest unit of municipal government is the village. Not that common. I grew up in a village. Did you know this? No. So you grew up in that smallest level of municipal government. So some municipal governments are very small, i.e. where you grew up, while others like Atlanta and Seattle, as two examples, are very large. And the municipal government usually oversees necessary services to the people who live within its boundaries. Most municipalities are led by elected officials, including a mayor and a city or town council. And if you're asking what do these governments do, some of their common powers and responsibilities include parks and rec, the police, the fire department, housing services, which includes things like zoning, permitting, public housing, and more, public transportation, business licenses, public libraries, street construction, maintenance, signage, garbage pickup, sewer service, and water service. So as I just read that list, hopefully you're saying to yourself, oh, I was today years old, you know, when I found this out, and because that was on some level me throughout this whole episode, and those are services that I depend on, if not daily, then weekly and monthly. And I think that this list should also highlight that while national elections are important, it is equally important and sometimes maybe even more important to pay attention to who you're electing on a local basis, because those individuals have a lot of say and power over your everyday lives and how your communities are shaped. I think that is such an important point, right? Like we do need to focus not just on those ballots every four years, but all of the ones in between all the way down the ballot every single time. And so speaking of those local elections, because when you mentioned all the responsibilities of the municipal government, when I think about my village, for example, there were some that were, I know for sure, ruled by the village, other that were ruled by the town and then like bigger groups. But like, who are these people that we're electing to run the municipal government? 
Right. So, you know, I mentioned the leaders really briefly, but there are two types of city governments. And sometimes I'm using sort of city and municipal interchangeably at times. And depending on what type of city government you have, the structure can be really different. So let's start with actually the kind of government that I have in my city, which is the council manager form of government. In this structure, the city manager is the chief executive officer, right, in cities that operate under this. And, you know, I should give a little disclaimer that my city is sort of a small to medium sized city on the peninsula in the Bay Area. And this form is much more common through the country in these types and sizes of cities. So there's a city manager and there's also a city council. Right. And in fact, the city manager gets appointed by the city council and not necessarily elected by the people. With some exceptions that vary by each city's charter, all city staffers are under the city manager's line of supervisions. Although at times the city attorney and city secretary report directly to the city council. So there's a couple reporting lines. Even in these situations, though, the vast majority of staff are under that city manager's direction. And more than any other staff member, the city manager is responsible for sort of making the city council's decisions into like actual reality. They also have the most influence on these decisions, too. So council members look to the city manager for guidance and expert opinion on issues facing the city. And as I was talking, you're probably realizing that when the manager and the council have a good relationship, you know, the council rarely goes against the manager's opinion, hopefully, right? Because the manager is reporting directly to the city council. So kind of managing the city council by the city manager is one of the most challenging aspects of the job, right? Because if you think, you know, in your workplace, right, if you've got one boss, one manager, keeping that one manager can be difficult, right? But let's try having seven or more who may have different opinions, backgrounds, and beliefs. All right. So that's the council manager form. So in the strong mayor form of government, which is, I think, more what yours is, Sarah, right? Yep. Yep. We're It's a lot more common for big cities and we're in Denver. So yes, we are the strong mayor form. Okay. So the mayor is the city's chief executive in this form. The city manager position doesn't exist. And the mayor is an elected official. So there are weaker forms of this government, which is why, you know, there's strong mayor. And then I guess there's weak mayor where the mayor reports to the city council so that there are more people sharing power, kind of like the city manager council format. But in the strongest strong mayor form of this government, the mayor holds a lot of power. Yeah, I mean, it's really true, right? Because, for example, Denver's case, you're executing and overseeing a $3 billion operation, right? You've got 12,000 city employees, including three units that are considered paramilitary, right? The police, the fire department, and the sheriff's office. And so I think it's important to take away from this. When you have this strong mayor form of government, you have to have these strong visions, And even when you have to respond to crises that are unexpected because that's just life, right? The projects that you are envisioning when you come into power are these fairly long-term projects. Because I think everything I read says you have to be prepared to stand on the shoulders of the mayors and the projects that came before you and help prepare those who are going to come after you. It's this really sort of legacy role in the shaping of an entire city over time. Mm, I think that's a really important fact. And you were talking about visions, right, that the mayor has to have. And I think that takes me to another possible difference between the city manager format and the mayor, because the city manager in that type of government typically has some specialized knowledge in things related to like city structure, right? But there is no prerequisite for any specialized knowledge if you are the mayor. You can run as early as 18 years old, for example. So that's also something to keep in mind as we look at the various forms of local government. 
That's such a good point. Um, you know, Denver's election cycle is up and, and there are a lot of people running for mayor. And it's really important to note that they may not have any experience like you might in other cities in how to run a city or how to think about a city. So that's awesome. So it's important to understand the structure of your local government. And there are also a lot of people who are involved in making visions reality, right? So let's think about who else helps run things on a really local level. Right. Okay, so in the council manager form of government, we also have assistant city managers who report to the city manager and supervise department heads. Assistant city manager positions are created when the city has too many department heads for the city manager to manage directly, like an extra layer of management to help make sure things get done. So assistant city managers allow the city manager to focus primarily on external issues. And by that, I mean sort of overarching strategy and issues with regards to other cities, the larger county, you know, et cetera, while the assistant city managers focus mainly on internal issues, which I mean to say the departments that actually keep the city running. So many cities group related departments under one assistant city manager. For example, you might have an assistant city manager who oversees the fire department and the police department. Similarly, an assistant city manager who oversees the planning department will also oversee the public works department, right? Because you need the permits to do the public work sometimes. When a city has only one assistant city manager, that person may also be called the deputy city manager. And a deputy city manager may also exist when the city manager wants to say, hey, you're my number two person from among several assistant city managers. And generally speaking, the council selects one of its members also to be like a vice mayor or mayor pro term. And that happens, you know, in also the mayoral when you have the weak mayor form of government. So since I started talking about mayors, flipping to that other form of local government, if you're in a strong mayor type of government, there may be within the same municipal government, one or more deputy mayors appointed to oversee policy areas, kind of like assistant city managers, together with, you know, a popularly elected vice mayor who serves as the mayor's successor in the event the office is vacated by death, resignation, disability, or impeachment. But going back to the deputy mayor, right, that position presides over the city council, except that they may not vote in city council, you know, on city council issues except to break ties. So in some U.S. cities, the mayor and the deputy mayor run together as a citywide ticket in elections, similar to how the president and the vice president run together at the national level. That's interesting. It sounds like whatever type of municipal government you have, you either have a city manager or a mayor, and then the structure shifts depending on which one you have. And I know that there are a lot of other people who aren't just running it, but are doing a lot of other like local government and ruling, if you will, and running of things. So who else is part of that local government? Okay, so we've also got the city attorney, who is the city's chief legal advisor, and they get involved in any city issue that requires legal consultation. But it's important to note that the city attorney position looks very different from city to city, because in some cases, the city attorney is not even a city staffer. Small cities tend to contract with an attorney or a law firm to represent the city. So because some firms specialize in local government law. So these firms might employ several attorneys who each represent a handful of cities, counties and school districts. When the city attorney is on staff, that position may report to the city manager or the mayor or the city council, depending on the type of government you have. Where the city attorney fits within the organization is most often spelled out in the city charter. And in smaller cities, the city attorney has no staff reporting to him or her, except perhaps an administrative assistant. But in larger cities, the city attorney supervises a legal department composed mostly of attorneys and legal secretaries, which sounds more like a law firm than whereas in small cities, it's like being a solo practitioner. There's just you. 
Yeah. I mean, it's so it sounds like the city attorney acts like what it sounds, a city's attorney who advises the leaders on legal matters. Give me more. Who else is involved? All right. So we've also got the finance director who oversees budgeting and accounting operations for the city. And kind of like the city attorney, the finance director, you know, touches all departments because of this broad scope of responsibility. The finance director also often reports directly to the city manager rather than to an assistant city manager, let's say. The finance director consistently updates revenue and expense data and modifies projections as appropriate. And that city manager is going to rely on the finance director to ensure that, you know, the city will have enough money throughout the year to keep up with planned expenses. Because you know, to your point, Sarah, about the mayor being the visionary, let's say, like, no matter how great an idea may be, everyone has to know how much it's going to cost, right, to see if it's feasible or not. And in that strong mayor system, the mayor and their administrative staff drafts and prepares the city's budget, which, even though it then must be approved by the council, means that the mayor's office is actually able to maintain pretty substantial control over the budget. However, city councils can balance this strong mayor system by retaining power over things like appropriations, the purchasing process and contracting procedures when you need to contract outside of the city or even within the city for certain things, and may also request audits and investigations of the executive department. So there's another check on the system. That's really cool. Uh, So, I mean, and we've talked about really important like backbones of the government, legal and financial matters, but I know the city also has a lot of other responsibilities and we've talked about it a couple of times, but the police, the fire department. Yeah. So the police chief in a city is the most high profile department head for reasons that you can imagine, both good and bad. Their work is often the most public work that a city does. And as a result, police chiefs typically have to work pretty closely with the city's public information officer, like basically as a PR team, right? In larger cities, police departments have their own public information staff because of the volume of media requests and other PR tasks, right? Often the most intensely scrutinized situations a police chief must deal with are officer-involved shootings for a good reason, right? As soon as information about the situation becomes public, the police chief must begin analyzing whether or not the officer acted appropriately. And I think this goes without saying, but officer-involved shootings often create racial tensions, right, in a community, which, you know, just adds to the pressure of doing a speedy and thorough investigation of the officer's actions, we hope. The police chief has staff working 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And at any moment, the police chief can get a phone call saying that one of their staff has been seriously injured or killed, which is definitely something that is not part of your average job, right? All right, so that's the police chief. And like the police chief, the fire chief has a 24-hour staff whose members put their lives, obviously, in danger to protect others. The fire department will respond to medical emergencies. They'll respond to traffic accidents, natural disasters, and obviously from the name fires. Fire departments have sharp lines of authority and emergency management protocols. The highest ranking department member at an emergency takes control. And that's if the fire chief is on the scene, that's always the fire chief. I'm really glad you mentioned that about all the other things that fire departments respond to, because I think the public perception is, oh, they're there for the fires. But talking to our friend who is in the fire department, they just talk so much about the traffic issues, these things that you just mentioned that are the bulk of their work. So I think that's important to realize you know, how much they actually help us as a society. So what about people who are responsible for the everyday maintenance and like enjoy like fun enjoyment in a community, you know, like public works, parks and rec. I think about those sorts of things that that add life to a community. 
Yeah. So I'm going to very briefly talk about four more directors who are key to, you know, having local municipal governments work for the community. So first, the public works director oversees the departments that many citizens think about when they think about, you know, what is city government, things like water, wastewater, streets and garbage collection. And public works is really an umbrella under which many cities put their utility and maintenance departments as well. So that's one. Second, the planning director helps the city council determine and communicate its vision of what the city will look like over time and ensures rather that the daily decisions of the planning department are consistent with that vision. So the planning department interprets zoning ordinances and applies them to plans that individual citizens and businesses bring to the department. So if you're a small business owner like I was, this is a department you go to when you need to convert the use of a business space to another use, for example. Or if you're contemplating like remodeling your house, let's say that's also when the planning department gets involved. The planning director makes recommendations to the planning commission and city council about whether or not one-time variances to zoning ordinances should be granted. All right, so third, the economic development director is responsible for developing policies for the city council to approve. And these policies sort of dictate what circumstances warrant a city granting tax incentives to businesses and to what degree those incentives will be awarded. When businesses want more than what the city policy allows, the economic development director negotiates with the business on behalf of the city. Any tentative agreement that the director makes must be approved by the city council to become final. And typically cities are reluctant to grant more than policy allows because they don't really want to let emotions override like all of the theory that has gone into these policy decisions in the first place. And finally, a department close to my own heart for various reasons, parks and rec. So the parks and rec director oversees parks, recreational facilities and recreation programs operated by the city. Kids sports. <laughs> yeah, like baseball diamonds, let's say. Robust parks and recreation departments improve the quality of life for citizens. I think that should be obvious if you've ever been to a park in your city. Parks and rec departments receive some revenue from facility reservations, i.e. the money you pay to have your kid's birthday party at the local park and mittens fees, but they are heavily subsidized by tax revenue. So the Parks and Rec director is also responsible for providing the best and, you know, most comprehensive array of programs for the money allocated in the city budget. This is all so good to know because there's a lot that goes into our everyday communities in terms of governance. And I love all of these smaller areas you included because I think it's really easy to take for granted that your area sort of just looks the way it does, right? But there is so much planning and thought and money that goes into all of the things that are around us because- can I go on a soapbox for just a minute? Why not? Go for it. Okay. I think what you just said is a really great reminder that we're all in this together. Because thinking about all of the people and the forces and the planning that you just mentioned, none of these plans are made in a silo or made with immediate gratification in mind, right? Instead of that, they're actually thoughtful, long-term planning towards a vision and not just away from what we don't want to see. So I think it's a great reminder also to take the time to think about what we want to see, not just what we don't want to see, and plan for those things to become a reality, which that reality, I think, is important to remember is shaped by so many forces, right? There's the idea of time affluence, where people, all of us, need to have time to actually think, what is it that we want in our life? There's the idea of people like us syndrome, where we're, and we need to work intentionally against our innate human pull, make sure that we're taking all people into consideration into these plans and not just people like us. You know, I think the need for us to consider the environment, because I think we are all very clear that we're on a major precipice for like future generations and what we're doing for our environment. 
And then I think the other like force at play is what I would call our society's obsession with maximizing money and capitalism at all costs versus a sense of responsible capitalism. And all of these forces, I think, are things that the government, these governmental bodies and the processes that are in place have to take into consideration in order to shape our collective future. So I really think it's important that we make the time to do this, like to engage with our local and state and federal governments, because we need to in order to be responsible and engage and have a hand in shaping what we want to see. So I'm stepping off. Love it. Now, I hope that was okay. I almost forgot. You mentioned there were two types of local government and we started with municipal and went down there, but then there's the bigger county. So can you talk briefly about what the deal is with counties? Yeah. And thanks for circling back on that. Because most states are divided into counties, although Louisiana uses the word parish to refer to this county level division. And in Alaska, the term borough is used. And as we started this whole thing by saying counties are larger than municipalities, because each municipality is in a county or the equivalent as our unincorporated areas that like what I live in actually that are not inside the boundaries of any municipality. There's always one city that's also designated as the county seat, which is another link between the concept of municipality and the larger county. Counties usually have some elected officials such as county commissioners and a sheriff. Some are led by a chief administrator or executive and they kind of sound similar to cities because they have similar sounding responsibilities. So some of the county responsibilities are school systems, public health, county courts, record archives, emergency management agencies, 911 services, senior citizen services, veteran services, public works, the sheriff's department, and solid waste disposal. The fundamental distinction between the two, though, is that cities or municipal areas have more autonomy, whereas counties are more closely linked to the state's. Because unless it's restricted by a specific provision of the state constitution, the legislature is allowed to delegate or even take back functions from counties that it wants to, kind of like state funding of trial courts, let's say. So the power of a county, right, can only be exercised by the board of supervisors, which is sometimes called a board of commissioners, depending on your state and your county structure, which is, you know, as we were talking about the different sort of executive functions of a city, these, the board of supervisors acts as both the legislative and executive authority of the county and consists of members who live in the area and are, are elected, right, or sometimes are appointed if needed. Going just beyond the supervisor, the power of the county can also be exercised through officers acting under the authority, right, of this board or authority conferred by law. So a county as an, a separate entity has the power to sue and be sued, purchase and hold land, manage or dispose of its properties, and levy and collect taxes authorized by law, right? But the board has to follow the procedural requirements and the statutes or all those actions are invalid. So for example, if the legislature has you know, provided a method, and I'm talking about the state legislature, has provided a method by which a county may abandon a road, they've got to do what the legislator says the process is for doing that. But essentially, the Board of Supervisors also has a unique relationship with the courts because they sometimes supervise the district attorney or the sheriff or work with the civil grand jury at times, or they can establish joint power agreements with other agencies, or they can also increase taxes or assessments or fees. 
And let me interrupt on that point for a second here, just to make sure we know the difference, because a tax, just to be clear, is an involuntary charge against an individual or a landowner, which pays for public services, regardless of whether the taxpayer benefits. An assessment is an involuntary charge on land, which pays for public improvements or services, which directly benefit the taxpayer. And all the revenue generated by an assessment has to be used for the improvements or the services specified. And then a fee that you just mentioned, that's a voluntary charge on an individual, which can't exceed the reasonable cost of providing the service, like a fee to enter the beach property of your local community, if you happen to be by with a waterfront or something like that. Love that you broke that down. Super important. Finally, I should note that sometimes board members are part of groups planning for future development and the associated service needs. So, you know, let's say like water or stuff related to the sewers or the impacts that something might have like air quality or airport safety. I had no idea that a board of supervisors does all this. And I think it's a reminder that I need to pay even closer attention to my ballot the next time we have local elections. But I do want to go back to one of the functions you mentioned with regards to counties. I think you mentioned the sheriff at some stage. Right. And I think we have heard this question a lot. And so let's ask it on our show. What's the difference between the sheriff and the local police? Or like, why do we need to elect a sheriff, but not our police chief? Yeah, great question. And most of the time, the simple answer is it's however it's laid out and required by the state's constitution. For example, let's take Michigan, right? In Michigan, the state constitution doesn't specify what a sheriff's duties are, except to say that the sheriff's duties and powers shall be provided by law, right? That means it's largely up to the legislature to determine the power and the duties of the sheriff. And the sheriff being a county officer, this person has law enforcement authority throughout their county, including the cities, villages, and townships and towns. The sheriff's primary responsibilities are the maintenance of law and order in areas of the county which aren't, you know, policed fully by local authorities and to respond to the law and order needs of citizens within local jurisdiction if local law law enforcement isn't able to do that, right? As the peace officer for the county, too, the sheriff is responsible for preserving the peace within the county. And there are some responsibilities that are specifically mandated by the Constitution and the legislature, and there are others that the sheriff carries out in pursuit of law and order. So let's talk about the mandated ones for a second. Those include being the principal officer for the state court system, making the sheriff responsible for court security, among other related duties. Another mandated responsibility is the establishment and operation of the county jail and other related services. The elected sheriff is also the head, this is not, should not be a shocker to anyone, of the office of sheriff and responsible for carrying out the responsibility of the sheriff using funded provided by the county commission overall. So the sheriff has authority within their department, which includes managing staff, the finances of the office within the budget that's set by the county, and ensuring that the duties of the sheriff are carried out. So in order to successfully carry out these duties, an elected sheriff, which is kind of why the sheriff should be elected, must have knowledge of criminal and civil law and procedure, provisions related to the custody of incarcerated individuals, civil rights, business administration, police management, employee and labor relations, personnel administration, and fiscal management. And that is a lot, right? The primary differences, though, between a sheriff's department and a local police department are their jurisdiction and legal requirements around them. So while a city police department's jurisdiction only goes to the boundaries of the city, right, the sheriff's jurisdiction crosses those local boundaries within the county. Local police remain responsible for, you know, what is maintaining law and order in their local units, and they're employed by cities or villages or townships, but not the county, right? While the sheriff is a constitutionally mandated office, local police aren't. So cities are required to provide for the public peace, health and safety of persons and properties, but the law doesn't say 
how they have to do that, right? Most cities organize a police department to provide for all these things, but they could instead choose to contract with the county sheriff or another local unit's police department. And that's actually what my city does. We have no local police. We contract with the county. So that was one, but I know you're going to ask me, so I'm just going to jump ahead. What are some other important county jobs? Well, there is the county clerk who's in charge of keeping government records, which includes things like birth certificates, marriage certificates, and death certificates, to name a few. And they also supervise elections. So when I do my election protection work, I have a list of all the county clerks from each county in the state as they are my first line to call when we receive information around possible voter intimidation issues or problems at voting sites. So this is an elected position. Another elected position is the county coroner who examines deaths within the county in an attempt to, you know, not only do a scientific examination as to why this person died, but also to provide answers to this individual's loved ones, depending on the manner of death. And I'm particularly talking about suspicious death. The county coroner sometimes operates as part of the sheriff's department as well. That's interesting. And I'm glad you answered the question I was going to ask. So appreciate you. I know we could record and we probably will at some point an episode on local law enforcement. And I think that will build out on our other episode on policing in this country, which we will be releasing really soon again. So keep an eye out for that. But so I'll wait to answer those questions for now. But my bigger question is, what do we do with all of this information that we have now? Like, how does this change how we interact with our communities? And what should we be keeping in mind? Okay, so let me throw that question back at you like a good attorney. What came to mind when I was saying all of this? And along those lines, what questions came up for you? And what do you think are your own next steps? I love when you lawyer on me. That's really (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Okay, so I would say that I'm really surprised at how much I only sort of vaguely knew, right? Like I'd heard of the Board of Supervisors, but I'd really, if I'm really honest, kind of brushed it aside. Like I don't really care for so many decades, right, at this point. And it was really eye-opening to learn or to, to sort of consciously now understand how all of these pieces that I've heard about fit together to make my life possible, really. So let me list off some other thoughts that I had that are relevant to me as a person living in a major sort of metropolitan area. One would be that my local city council It was interesting because I heard they're available and I've read comments and posts from reps on social media, but I have never, ever listened to a city council meeting myself before. And so I looked up this information, literally entered Denver City Council in the search (laughs) engine. And now I know that as it turns out, the meetings take place every Monday and you're able to listen in on them from my own computer and my own home. So I think it's time that I listen to one just to learn what's happening around here and to start feeling more involved instead of sort of snarkily commenting on the from the sidelines about like what's happening. I, I need to actually see it firsthand and start forming my own opinions on what's going on. Something else that came to mind was this idea of speaking up. I was encouraged actually at one stage to go and speak at the state Senate on behalf of the Japanese internment site in Colorado and say like, look, it should be designated a national historic site. But I kind of use the excuse of I have a lot of stuff going on right now to mask the fact that I was really scared about going and using my voice in a system that I didn't know anything about. So I kept my voice quiet and I didn't do it. And so as it turns out, luckily, right, it went in the direction I wanted. President Biden designated it as a national historic site. But in hindsight, I'm like, wow, that's an interesting missed opportunity to get experience. The same way I actually have never been on jury duty. I've never been called to participate in that. I have not had opportunity to and created opportunity for myself to get engaged in local politics and stand up for what I believe in that way. So I think once I go in, to the city council and really starting getting in the flow of learning this stuff, I'll get more comfortable thinking about and looking for opportunities where I feel strongly enough to lend my voice. 
And then this last point, the mayoral elections, I sort of thought about it, mentioned it when when we were talking earlier, but there were about a billion candidates who put their hat in the ring for this upcoming election for Denver mayor. And to be honest, because there were so many, I haven't dug into each candidate yet. I was like, well, let's wait till it whittles down a little bit to start making decisions or probing for answers to the questions I have. But I'm realizing just how much power a mayor has on the city area and to affect change for decades. So it's time to start really reading up on candidates in particular about where they stand for issues that I think are matter to this area. And I think this issues of what matters to you will differ depending on who you are and what your background is and where you live. But for me, things like guns, unaffordable housing and unaddressed like unhoused situations for so many people in the city, school funding, 911 services and police responses versus I think this incredible star system, this support team assisted response system that Denver has been pioneering about responding to emergency calls. Like those are some of the issues that I really care about. And I felt like now I can start whittling down the lens or shape the lens through which I look at all these candidates through my lens, as opposed to reacting to who I think they might be. So that's my thoughts. What about you? So first of all, thank you so much for sharing that and being really open about it. Because I think, you know, what you said, I feel a lot of in certain ways, like I largely was, like I said, I was today years old when I found out a whole bunch of this stuff regarding our very local system. And what I think about is, and I think we talked about this on the podcast before the last, our midterm elections, right, which seemed like 25 years ago you know, there was a mom at our school who gathered a whole bunch of moms together and was like, look, these are issues that I think are really important locally. Here are all the endorsements, right, that have come down from various groups, and we'll group all the candidates by all the local positions. And there was a city council member who came and spoke to us as well. And I was like, this is so easy to do, because like you pointed out, All the city council members are on social media too. You can tweet at them and they will respond back. You can, you know, they've got Instagram accounts. There are a lot of ways to actually get in touch with people. And I think it's so powerful when we can pull our spheres of influence into this, right? So I'm thinking about how am I going to do this for the next elections that come up? Like, how am I going to educate myself? Because it was a real push to educate myself before I went there too, to be able to talk about these candidates and issues. And some of the candidates weren't even candidates that I could vote for, but it was still really interesting. And to also question who are the candidates on my ballot? Because we had a school board, school board is part of our election. And we had a candidate who has no kids in the area running for the first time and had some very interesting language about back to basics on their school board platform. And I I think that it's, had I not though, sort of gone down a rabbit hole, read all the stuff she was putting out and really researched it, I wouldn't have known though. And so I think the onus is on all of us, right? And I'm I'm saying this pointing at myself, right? To do this research and pull others in with us because it's that important. Because I think, you know, Sarah, you were talking about the ability to use your voice, right? And you didn't. And I think this is the time, right? We all collectively have the power to get loud individually for the issues that matter to us. And then collectively for all of us, right? Because this in the end impacts all of us. So that's how I'm going to end. How are you, friends, going to get loud? You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 